0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Robinson.
1: Well, it's about time Brad Dacus shows up. Now, well, welcome back to the program. Hour number two here on your basic Tuesday evening. And as I mentioned at the top of tonight's show, sort of an early Christmas gift for the church, national implications to a decision handed down by a judge in Green Bay, Wisconsin, related to what had been a, a very tricky ordinance that attempted to label religious organizations, churches, as places of public accommodation, and in doing so, open up a whole hornet's nest of agenda. Joining me now with some insights to this story is constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, always great to have you on the show. Tell us what was going on here. This is a small town, De Pere, um, which is just outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin. What were they trying to do? What were the city fathers up to?
2: They were uh, trying to adapt, uh, adopt a, and they did adopt a a public accommodation ordinance. Basically, what it said was that uh, that businesses, um, including churches, uh, could not discriminate uh, with regards to their employees' uh, same-sex sexual relationships, um, or those, or or how they dealt with employees' gender identity dysphoria, uh, whether they like it or not. Churches in their town um, had to compromise their beliefs, their convictions, when it comes to the pe- comes to the people that they actually had on their staff to do the work that that uh, God had called them to do. So, so, so
1: let, let's say, let me interrupt here just to put a sure. point of clarity to this. So, let's say in an extreme case that Reverend So and So shows up to church on Sunday in a dress and says. Folks, I've been dealing with an issue for a lot of years, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually not Reverend so-and-so, I'm sister so-and-so, and I will be conducting all the church services now in, in a dress instead of a suit. I mean, what you're suggesting that is under this particular law, a church would not be in a possession to say, mm, you know, that's not going to work for us. That's certainly not squaring with our beliefs, with our doctrine, et cetera. Essentially, a church would be on the hook to have to, have to tolerate that, would it not?
2: That's right. The city actually it, it was this ordinance they invaded the church and they said this is what you must do this is who you uh, can't uh, can't fire whether with, no matter what your beliefs are it's we don't care uh, it's sort of a flashback actually to the king of England uh, telling the church there you know saying you don't you must do this you can't do this your church has to have these these things in the, in the sanctuary and uh, they had a revolution and a lot of pilgrims came to America over that issue.
1: Well, you know, and the interesting thing is, for a small town like this, this is not like New York saying, gee, we've got all these cases of discrimination going on. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, churches are allowed under their First Amendment rights to, in a sense, discriminate. That's, I guess, some would argue the reason why we have a multiplicity of denominations out there. So if there's something that a church doesn't uh, doesn't teach or doesn't believe or doesn't accept, you get a chance to vote with your feet and go across the street. So why did the city of Dupree Dupree decide that this was such a burning time Topic that they had to, as you say, invade the church's First Amendment rights.
2: Yeah, um, that's a good question. They just they were um, just very dogmatic uh, about uh, pushing pushing this. Uh, those in the, the, city, on the city council uh, had clear notice uh, to our objections. We at Pacific Justice Institute flew out. We made it very clear to them at their board meeting in writing. Uh, why this was uh, wrong, why it was unconstitutional. Uh, They refused to back down. So we gave them full and clear notice of the problem. And so we had no choice but to go ahead and file a lawsuit and argue this uh, before uh, the judge there in Green Bay, Wisconsin.
1: So in the end result, the, the judge weighed in on this and concluded what?
2: The judge concluded uh that uh, this was uh, uh unconstitutional uh that uh, this violated the rights of religious institutions uh to an organizations to be able to uh, practice their faith carry out their faith uh free from government intrusion and government mandates and edicts to the contrary one i think i like to point out is the uh, the churches we represented they welcome everyone to attend their church They love everyone uh, attending their church. (laughs) Um, It's just they want to run their church according to the teachings of Scripture, and uh, that includes those that they hire, those in ministry positions. And uh, this city was just so dogmatic uh, with regards to their radical, oppressive agenda that uh, they were willing to cram that agenda down the throats of these churches, whether they liked it or not. Now, with the
1: decision by the judge in Green Bay, does this now have... A um, uh, president setting uh, element to it for other municipalities across the country that would be considering doing something like this.
2: Well, this is a binding with regards to uh, w- uh, Wisconsin. Um, this was a state court in Wisconsin. Uh, so we're, we're pleased that uh, that you know that, that turned out that way, but it still has an effect in this regards. Um, it does send a signal to other cities that if they attempt to go down this road, whether it's arguing the state constitution or the federal constitution, we at Pacific Justice Institute will go anywhere we have to to defend every church in America with regards to their ability to be free from such state intrusion and oppression and control. And that's the message, that's the big picture that we're hoping to send across the United States uh, uh, this Christmas season.
1: No mountain too high to climb, no bridge too far. I love it. And, uh, you know, when you're thinking about your holiday giving uh, this season, as the, uh, the new year uh, quickly comes upon us, uh, remember to think about supporting the fine work of the Pacific Justice Institute. They do a great job here, not only in the 11 western states where their principal area of service is, but apparently, as Brad Dacus mentions, are willing to go just about anywhere where their services are needed. And an attorney that does the work pro bono. I mean, you got to love that, right? That's like a doctor who makes house calls. Who's ever heard of that anymore? Brad Dacus, we appreciate the time, brother. God bless you. And, again, information available on the web about this story and others at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Brad Dacus, founder and constitutional lawyer. Okay, we are at 6.15. Bada bing, bada boom. Can't have traffic without a little bit of traveling music, right? Let's see what's going on out there. Oh, my goodness. Wow. See, I told you don't follow so close. (laughs) Michael Bennett, you just made a lot of people look up. Disclaimer, folks, blame him. It's his fault. He presses all the buttons. I just... Yeah, I just, yeah, up to no good in there. That's what you're up to. All right, let's get a look at traffic. Michael, help us out here. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep. The silent stars go by. Ah, yes, indeed they do. And, of course, as we mark the beginning of the holiday season here, and most importantly, the um, special observance of Christmas for believers across the world. Once again, for many Bay Area folks, it wouldn't be Christmas without Bethlehem A.D. Now in its 26th year, and joining me is the creative director of Bethlehem A.D., Paula Dresden. And Paul, as always, uh, a very Merry Christmas to you.
3: Well, thank you, and thank you for letting me share about Bethlehem AD on your show.
1: This is an amazing experience, and and I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking back over all the years. So we've been on the air. 29 years and I think we've done this just about uh, 24 or 25 of the 26 years that Bethlehem AD has been in existence. And it's of course, as I mentioned in my opening remarks Paula, this has really become for so many a family tradition and what a wonderful way to enter into the full spirit of the Christmas season than to do it with Bethlehem AD. But for folks that are new, don't know anything about it, tell us a bit about the about the concept behind Bethlehem AD.
3: Well, Bethlehem A.D. Uh, tells the story of the first Christmas, and we do it as a gift to the Bay Area. It's totally free. And um, what we do is create the town of Bethlehem with all the different aspects. You see uh, centurion Romans and village people people and folk dancers and such like that. And uh, the guest enters in and sees all this chaos, sort of like our world today, and then they are... It all concludes at the manger where um, angels are giving glory to God and praising Him for the Savior being born that night. And the guest leaves making their own conclusions about what Christmas is all about, which makes it user-friendly for people who don't know the Lord. And, um, you know, so it's been successful.
1: And of course, as you mentioned, it it really gives people a sense of the the reality of Christmas. Um, the the Christmas story is one, of course, that happened many, many, many years ago, and yet you have been able to come together and really, in in a sense, recreate this. And as much as we've seen it on television or at the movies or it in stories, literally you bring Bethlehem AD to life. Tell us about all of the inner workings. This has got to take months and months and months of preparation and untold numbers of volunteers.
3: Well, it does take a lot of preparation and a lot of volunteers. Everyone works for free, uh, including myself. So uh, each year it's uh, a task for me to try and find new people to fill in others, you know, move on and do other things. And so we're always looking for creative people to come in and give us a hand and also just to come up with ideas.
1: <laughs> this year's Bethlehem AD will run December 21, 22, and 23 nightly from 6 until 9.30 p.m., rain or shine. Walk us through the experience, if you would, folks that come down into uh, downtown um Redwood City there at 1305 Middlefield Road will be in for quite a surprise. Um, Realism has been sort of the watchword for what you've done down through the years. So kind of walk us through what the experience looks like, Paula.
3: Well, okay. Now, the first thing that they'll see is a large crowd. They'll see um, Starcracker lights that shows you where the spot of Bethlehem is. And um, they can be directed when they come to a parking lot, Kaiser Permanente uh, has let us use their parking garage, and we have shuttles uh, going back and forth. It's, uh, it's very quick, but it it allows for parking in downtown Redwood City. And then the next thing they'll encounter is probably a long line, and the line we know is long because we only want uh, uh, to allow, uh, uh, you know, a, a few people. Well, no, I shouldn't say few, but as many people as the village can allow for the visitors to have a good time. So the um, the line does get kind of long, but we totally entertain at the line. So you'll see on the line centurions marching back and forth. You'll see animals going up and down, led on leads. And you'll see Herod the Great, who um, is trying to find this king, who never does find him, who wants to kill him if he does find him. So that's nice. And he has an entourage of um, dancers around him. And... Uh, We'll have children in a chain gang who's um, who have been captured in um, in Germania or something like that, and are being taken down to Rome to be sold as slaves. That's one of the things we got going up there. And let's see, all greeters and people just going, you know, saying hello, gr- greeting people. So then, once you get inside Bethlehem, you'll see um, tax collectors. We oh, we give. Coins to everybody to give to the tax collectors. Everything's free, so they give their little gold coin to the tax collector, and then they come on in and um, they give their signature to the census taker, and they'll encounter now the marketplace. And we have uh, a potter actually making pottery there. We have kids in the marketplace making uh, metal jewelry that they wear. Then we have a bakery. They're baking bread in the bakery, and then we have a marketplace with vegetables and fruits and stuff, and we're also going to add a spice market this year, so that'll be kind of interesting. And the kids um, are in tribes. They have little roles to do, and they will uh, give you maybe a nut to taste or something like that. Also, we have a a synagogue where um, there's rabbis, debating about who this messiah could be, so how could the messiah be sleeping, he's supposed to never sleep nor slumber, so they're debating whether this is the real one, and that's interesting, they're reading scripture, and the kids are in also in the synagogue, um, learning some Hebrew words and stuff like that, and we'll, then you'll see folk dancers and people cooking over the fires, because the cast eats their dinner at Bethlehem, so you'll be seeing people eating and so forth. And then there's this huge area we have for the animals, and so you'll visit, oh, I forgot the inn. The inn is an exciting area where there's interaction and talk about there's just no room and what happened to Mary and Joseph. They had to send them down the road to the to a stable. And um, then you encounter a lot of animals. We have about 150 animals, including chickens and rabbits, but um, the total. And the visitors go by and they can pet the animals and visit with them and so forth. And then finally they reach the the manger where we have angels dancing and um, they are choreographed in their dance. They dance for three and a half hours straight with no break. And so it's really quite beautiful. The church across the street, uh, angels are on the roof and those are kind of like what we call our warrior angels. And they're doing warrior kind of positions. So the whole thing is just kind
1: of a, an experience. It, it's really quite, yeah. it's quite spectacular. And, again, many folks across the Bay Area use this as a great way to officially launch the start of their Christmas. Again, running December 21st, 22nd, 23rd, from 6 to 9.30 p.m. Each evening, rain or sign. There's no cost. You can get more information by going to BethlehemAD.com. That's BethlehemAD.com. Literally, Bethlehem comes to life in the middle of downtown Redwood City. Look for the searchlights. Make it a part of your Christmas holiday season as well. Bethlehem AD, now in its 26th year. Information again on the web at BethlehemAD.com. Mark the dates, December 21, 22, and 23 from 6 to 9.30 p.m. nightly. And our thanks to Paula Dresden, creative director with Bethlehem A.D., and we wish you much continued success with this year's event, Paula, and a very Merry Christmas to you.
3: Well, thank you, Craig. Thanks so much. Oh,
1: little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep The silent stars go by. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And
0: now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: How many believers today? Maybe, maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself. You can tell people what you believe. You just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to have you on the program.
4: Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, the
1: Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction?
4: No, I, I honestly couldn't, and uh, it seems in some ways as though it was only yesterday. Time has gone by so quickly, as you say, and yet uh, these have been great and privileged years, and I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades. And, uh, and then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted.
1: Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so more and deeper into the arena of a cr- a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day in time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies
4: within, this is it yeah i don't think there's any doubt about that and i was listening to your introductory comments and uh, I, I agree with you entirely and uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, christian people uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors because our role is to prepare god's people for works of ministry and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation and uh, so, uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh, in uh, the culture here in America, particularly and in, in, in expressly so just in the last few days.
1: Well, and certainly, you know, uh, I think all of us, perhaps begrudgingly, can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern-day American pulpit. But but that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Uh, Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon Him, and to meditate on how great He is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action rather than meditation is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in in the, the church in specific and in our
4: society At large, that that certainly summarizes it. Well, yeah, I think it's a. I it sounds so good. I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. (laughs) (laughs) But it's right on the mark
1: because we we don't ponder the word the way we used to. No, and to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of god's grace that that god would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf such a greater love mankind has never known and and i think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've it, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we
4: would recapture that ability,
1: how the church could turn the world upside down.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, if you take the average person coming to church, they're, they're not asking the question, where is Jesus? They're asking, where am I? Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in, the, in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche, at, at least until this point in time.
1: How much of this really pivots on the Church, its strength, its understanding of God's Word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of, of culture and society at large?
4: Well, you know, Church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that, uh, that the collapse of the Church has always been internal, you know, it, it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've, they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but, but the real danger is the, the danger of a sort of internal... Uh, erosion and uh, a collapse in confidence a loss of confidence in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself and again many many people who pay lip service to to jesus uh, will be uh, really struggling to to stand up to the the, the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus, that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus, that there's only one name by which men and women may be saved, and that is in the name of Jesus. And the, the, the drift in culture in, in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man in or a, mo- a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair
1: Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into uh, the, the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ as our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. Get you an update on traffic? Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Big on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast weekday mornings at seven thirty, right here on KFAX. You know we hear these days Alistair uh, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms on uh, the pulpit, rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly needs, means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that is that seems to be glaringly
4: absent. Well, yes. I You know, I think... Um... It's always dangerous to generalize and I know you understand that too um, yeah I think we've gone through a real a, a real period of time in which you know that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness and um, you know when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale divinity students uh, uh, James Stewart in in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of, the, one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, uh, my 60s, is to see how many young men, though, Are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are.
1: And, of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't
4: it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the I mean, in in first century Corinth, Paul knew that uh, you know if he gave the people what they wanted to to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, but the one thing that, uh, that they were unprepared for is um, you know the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as
1: we look at society today, uh, Western culture there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a song, spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and and present the gospel that people can look at
4: and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. You know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years, and I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning you know, sort of American Christianity, and of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he said that he he, he, t- he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission. So mm. that we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong. Uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings. And I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never, ever—he um, never deviated from the clarity of his message, and yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the— on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to
1: a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last
4: couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the is the changed heart. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it, because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are— seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for, uh, you know, moral rectitude and for for biblical values and so on. But, um, you know, I I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to, well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time, I think, that the moral majority and— and that whole movement is, you know, is is coming to the fore, and doing what it's done, and you know, it's gone all the way around. But, you know, I think we have to say that it actually, it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now, uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is, it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than. Um, uh, a testimony to to immorality, and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and laboured for, and I actually am quite excited about it, though, Craig. I I'm not despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that there are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church, mm. if we if we recognise that as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize too that, you know, our view of the world is, is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos And that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which of course challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic, uh, which of course is, you know, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes
1: us back then to the centrality of his lordship, And maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church, as much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events, morally, politically, even economically that's been occurring in our country and in sort of the the micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things... Then I think God can indeed have us in the position where He can better use us to influence culture and society around us.
4: Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield. Yes. You you all you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke, and he combined as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the, the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that, that uh, cares for, the, for those who are least and last and left out.
1: If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior,
4: what would that be? Wow. oh, well, I, I think I, if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that, that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being a, an expression of his identity. That what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he teaches me, and what he teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures, and I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which uh, to which I'm called, and that then you know impacts every area of our lives uh, our vocation uh, our sexuality uh, our marriages uh, our singleness whatever it might be and you know then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people and and often uh, you know the the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ mm. the compassion of Christ the patience of Christ and i think so often if you if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way and a few crazy people have, have led to it, but but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people, uh, as opposed to uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians, uh they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for, there's silence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly.
4: Yeah, it does. I mean, I, 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 you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation started, may I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't, He he eventually gets to the point, you know, when he asks her to call her husband and. And she admits that, you know, she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's, no, that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning, you know, her uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation.
1: Hey, we as the Church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the Gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and of course ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple to count the cost we sure appreciate your time your faithfulness to the lord and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry thanks so much again for the time there's pastor alistair beg again uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 7:30 here on kfax and uh, wow 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in Cleveland, and what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this, if Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note? It's not about puffing people up, but you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for his word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org, truthforlife.org. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the lifeline podcast our producer is wanda sanchez i'm craig roberts till next time round, remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long
0: opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership staff or management of kfax